Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, Family Secrets listeners. It's Danny. I'm very excited to be sharing a special bonus episode of Family Secrets with you all. At the end of January, to celebrate the paperback publication of my memoir, Inheritance, I did a series of live podcast events around the country, and the first of these was at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with the renowned trauma expert and author of The Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. After all, when it comes to family secrets, trauma is inevitably involved. But when Bessel and I sat down for our conversation, we, none of us, had any idea that we were about to enter a time of collective trauma. This will be a two-part special bonus episode, my conversation with Bessel today, and then we'll share the conversation with the audience in Portsmouth tomorrow. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here. It's great to be here with Bessel. It's amazing to see this turnout on a late January evening in Portsmouth, um, or anywhere, really, um, in this gorgeous theater. So I was, I was thinking about, um, I've been thinking for a while about coming here and doing this special live episode of, um, of Family Secrets with Bessel as my guest, and I was thinking about, I love full circle moments. And this feels like one to me. About three winters ago, um, I reached out to Bessel. We have a mutual friend, the yogi and yoga philosopher Stephen Cope. And um, I was in a complicated state. I had recently made the discovery about a huge family secret of my own uh, after casually doing a DNA test, recreationally doing a DNA test, the way I think of it, and discovered in pretty short order that my beloved dad who raised me had not been my biological father, which was something that had never entered my mind. And so I was in this state of really almost a kind of relationship to my own self, my, my identity, my body, my face in the mirror, um, that felt uh, traumatizing um, and shocking. And I was walking around really feeling the physical symptoms of that, the dizziness, the lightheadedness, the floatiness. And um, so I, I reached out to Bessel, and he very kindly agreed to uh, meet me, and um, we spent an afternoon talking by a fire on a winter day. And I couldn't have imagined, as has been true in my life so many times, that it would just be three short years later, and I would have synthesized this, um, metabolized this experience into a book, uh, Inheritance, and that then I would simultaneously create this podcast, which was a happy accident. Um, just really briefly, I wrote this book about my family secret, about my being the family secret, and then all of a sudden people started telling me theirs. And the very first time that that happened, it was a friend of mine, the Buddhist mindfulness teacher, Sylvia Borstein, and 
she had just read the manuscript of Inheritance, and it prompted her to tell me a story of a family secret of hers. And I was on the other end of the phone, and I thought, I wish I was recording this. And that is the entire way that this podcast was born. But one of the things that I've noticed in now two going on three seasons of the podcast, so 30, this new season is launching next week, it will be 30 guests that I've spoken to, which is not, it's not really a scientific sample, but I've noticed a few things. And one of the things that I've noticed is that every guest of mine at some point or another, no matter what their story is, does use the word trauma. And I guess I wanted to begin by, there's a, there's a line from The Body Keeps the Score, which I just reread uh, and re-underlined and felt new things about. I think The Body Keeps the Score is a book that you can probably come back to multiple times in your life and read it differently and have different, um, different moments in it and different concepts in it that are underscored. But I figured that you wrote um, the book probably in around 2013. And you wrote that we are on... Over 10 years. Actually. Over 10 years. Yeah, you didn't write it in 2013. But, right. but I, as you were writing this, um, at this point, you wrote, we're on the verge of becoming a trauma-conscious society. So I guess I wanted to ask you what you meant by that then, and how does that sit with you now, seven years later? Well, I think that's a very tough question because we live in this sharply divided world. And at the same time that I know hundreds of people around the country who are doing amazing work. I know people who have these yoga programs in the Baltimore inner city schools. I know people who have Shakespeare programs in the Kansas City, uh, Kansas prisons and just amazing programs, singing with soldiers. Um, working with horses with people. I see there's enormous layers of consciousness and really getting it. And then our mainstream society becomes more and more rooted in this destructive capitalist world of how can we make more money and destroy the world a little bit faster so that we can make more money, which is just astonishing, including medicine itself, of course. Uh, psychiatry, very much so. Huh? Of living with a crazy diagnostic system, giving people labels that don't make any sense, that have no scientific validity. And at the same time, this other group of people who don't get paid by insurance, who, you know, who are not part of the system, really discovering a lot. And I see the, the difference becomes larger and larger in a way. Um, and I don't get it. It's very much what we see on so it becomes Capitol Hill right now. Yeah. So it becomes yeah. larger and larger, and yet at the same time, there's more and more of an identification of um, an experience, a piece of history, a, a parent, an aspect of childhood, um, yeah. as as being identified as trauma. Like more and more, it seems. I mean, look, your book has it came out three years ago. Um, four, yeah. four years ago, and there's a reason why your book has occupied the top three spots of the New York Times paperback nonfiction bestseller list yeah. for an entire year. Right. 
Um, people in airports are thinking, I know what I'm going to read. I'm not going to read Daniel no. Steele. I'm not going to read <laughs> Danny Shapiro. No, I'm going to uh, read... They read Danny <laughs> Shapiro also because it's the next book you read. You know? but so they are twin books anyway. So yeah. what, what do you yeah. think that that, that hunger is um, about? That's, again, it's a tricky question. I see it. And I see... No, I'm so impressed that I live in a particular world. People ask me all the time what's happening in the world. I say, I don't know. I just know the people I know. I know the people who come to see me, the people who I hang out with, the people who want to share their work with me. And I meet all these enlightened, very thoughtful, very mindful people. At the same time, the people who I don't see, I hear only horror stories about. And I don't know how large this is, you know. And so I don't know. But I know that, that there's many places, almost every place that I go to, I meet people who do amazing things in terms of getting into your body, telling the truth, speaking openly, trying to lead an authentic life. Interestingly also in Silicon Valley, which is sort of the hub of the world in some ways, where there's all the money and all these immature people doing amazing things and crazy things. And yet people are also really searching for how do we keep ourselves together? How do we pay attention to each other? And so it's a very serious effort to understand how we can make safe, safe and energizing places for each other. Hmm. Yeah. My mind just went to the, you know, quote-unquote wellness movement as sort of something that's kind of adjacent to this in a way where... I think we, meaning we who think about these things, are thinking about the body more and more mm. as the place that is the locus of where uh, it all gets expressed. I mean, there's a moment in your book, probably several, where you talk about gut instincts, right? Or, and I remember when I was reading that thinking, I have never in my life had a gut instinct and followed it. And been and regretted it, mm. and been. I have had gut instincts and ignored them, uh, mm. and that that leads to, you know, walls and trouble. I think, but the the idea that we're listening, listening to our bodies more. Yes, we are. You know, in certain circles, at the same time that we know the importance of the body and being safe together, our public school systems are abolishing. Um, recess, our abolishing theater, our abolishing sports, and giving kids tests to substitute for that. One of the, Obama's worst appointments, Arnie Duncan, who, who just rammed little tests down kids' throat, completely ignoring the natural thing that a kid needs to do is to play and to horse around and to feel your body in relationship to other bodies. And so you have these layers that live side by side. Um... um I don't know the prevalence of either lane. I see a lot of good things happening, but um, mm. I see a lot of bad things happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, let me give you an example. The dean of my medical school uh, called me in and said, I've read your book, and I think you can really help us uh, because we have a terrible problem with uh, burnout among our doctors, a lot of suicides, people leaving, people being horribly depressed, and can you help us? And I said, I'd love to. Uh, and then she said, but you cannot change the system. <laughs> and I go, so why should I help you? 
if you're unwilling to actually look at the fact that you're only allowed to see people for seven minutes and not form a long-term relationship with them, which is the, the wellspring of human wellness, is long-term relationships, as your book so beautifully talks about. You know, We are basically loyal people who like to belong to groups of people, and that's our essence. And if you live in a completely alienated uh, corporate world, all the connections get ignored and loyalty doesn't get rewarded, then you're not on the right track. Well, and of course you're talking about the ground of childhood yeah. as, as where so many tracks get laid mm. that once they're laid, are, the question really is how we're able to or whether we're able to adapt to act, to have efficacy, right? Um, I think generally if you have resources, you can find all kinds of ways mm-hmm. to really change yourself. Uh, you, uh, the way to change yourself is actually engage in things that directly contradict what you were, what you hold in your body. Uh, so when you're stiffened up, taking tango dancing lessons would be very good to be just, just in tune with somebody else. Duly noted. Uh, I talk a lot about singing. We know a lot about the neurobiology of singing and what does to the brain. Singing together is a marvelous thing. It really makes you feel cheerful and optimistic and connected. But we don't sing anymore. You can still go to singing camp or take a workshop with us where we do sing. So when you say resources, what do you, what do you mean by resources? Like if you have the resources, if you have the resources what, what, you, what, are res- what are resources? You need money. Mm-hmm. You need time off. You need to access, have access to stuff. There may be a little community like Portsmouth, maybe a rich community in terms of resources. There are yoga classes, there are tai chi classes, there are choirs, there are places, uh, double uh, AA meetings. Means where people can come to and actually meet each other and get to know each other. Maybe that's why people move to places like like Portsmouth. Uh, mm. But it needs to be around. It needs to be visible. Huh? We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were talking backstage about one of the patients that you write about in your book who really didn't have the the kindergarten teacher, who really had a very, very difficult childhood, I mean, one would say not a lot of resources, right, available to her who ended up more than okay, you know, with a, with a, with a very fulfilled life. How does that happen? See, nothing is linear. You know, it's like that leads to death and that leads to death. But you say she had no resources, which is what I said, but I said she was horribly abused by both of her parents, but they made music together at home. And I think something like making music together and just letting it hang out and getting in tune with people can be enormously powerful just to get things. You cannot lie and play music. There's truth-making and getting your stones right and getting, doing it at the right moments, stuff like that. Yeah. That's interesting. I, tomorrow night I'm going to be in New York City and my guest is this uh, singer-songwriter named Alison Moorer. And um, Allison was, uh, I mean, she's, she's the daughter of two uh, Nashville country singers. Father was an alcoholic. They made music together, all of them, the two sisters and the father and the mother. 
And then when she was 14, her father shot and killed her mother and then turned his gun against himself and committed suicide. And I've thought a lot about Allison in preparation for for talking to her and her sister, Shelby Lynn, who are both beautiful Mm singer-songwriters. And I think a big part of what had to have saved them in some way was was music and the memory of the music that they made with their with their parents right. when they yeah. were all together. Yeah, I, I would think that. Huh? Like we talked backstage about our religious backgrounds, I bet that Yom Kippur services still move you deeply, even though you may, you may not practice it. I still love Bach cantatas and stuff like that from my background. And, it's 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 know. the it's the ground of, yeah. um, you know, I was I was telling you that. I wrote this memoir called Devotion, and one of the things that I discovered after it was published, I was expecting, I, because I was raised um, observant in a very strict home, I was always envious of people who were brought up with nothing because I thought that they, that just meant we got to choose, you know, uh, and with no guilt. You know, you could just pick from the smorgasbord of religions. Yeah. And what I was struck by and learned just from people responding to me, to the book, was that the people who were brought up with nothing were actually um, the most lost and confused in their spiritual life. And that growing up with anything gave people either something to remember or something to to rail against, um, but it was something formative. Right. Living up with rules and structures and what I call liturgies is very important. I'm a real believer in liturgy. You get get up and every Saturday you do a particular thing and every 4th of July you do another thing and you know what to look for. There's a certain regularity to life, a little predictability and a little thing of, at that time we're really going to devote ourselves to something that we do together, uh, which all religions of course do. You make noises together, you move together. And I think being raised in something like that is very important. You you talk a lot about um, action as being, and you're you're talking particularly about um, the kinds of capital T traumas, you know, as I think of them, um, where someone is trapped or someone is in a burning car and can't save the people around them, or someone is violently attacked and can't move. And the inability to take action somehow embeds itself and makes um, recovery or reprocessing more complex. Yeah, it's a combination of two things. So that basically when you're exposed to something horrendous, you automatically are meant to move or meant to do something. If at that point you don't move or do something, the hormones that trigger your brain to move actually go in a different direction, take a different path, take a path into collapse and helplessness. So when people start messing with you, the normal thing is like, get the hell away from me and to move. Um, the, The thing... That happens to many people is when something scary happens, they collapse and conform. So it's the opposite of fight or flight. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's really to collapse that keeps people going. So it's actually just, where was it? Um, I said there's a program called 
impact, used to be called model mugging, where you train women who, I think it happens to many people, particularly women who have been abused, they, their bodies tend to be collapsed of, I can't do anything, that's the only thing I'm good for, and they teach them martial arts and to fight and to recreate the most scary thing in their lives and to take action where they couldn't take action before. Mm-hmm. It was, to my mind, a beautiful program mm. uh, to help people to get out of that physical sense of helplessness. And you don't become a tough broad instead. You just becomes, mm-hmm. become a person who walks through the world with self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's so much. I mean, I was very struck by the story that you tell very early in the book about family friends of yours and their little boy who were uh, very close to the towers on 9-11. Um, and it was his first day of school, I think. And yeah. um, so he saw a lot, as many people did and many children did. And um, his parents had, you know, you, you visited and the parents... Um, were processing what they were processing, but it was a very loving, um, safe, grounded family environment. And the right? family actually and I uh, walked through the cleanup site on September 15th. They knew the rescue worker, so we with, we with, were in the stench and the stuff. With, with, so with we did something. Boy. We didn't just talk about how miserable we right. felt. And, 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 and the boy came yeah. as well? No, the boy stayed okay, home. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he then draws a, he, he makes a drawing. Yeah. And it's a drawing of the buildings, and the buildings are on fire, and there are, there are people jumping from the buildings. And then there's something that you can't quite make out at right. the bottom of the drawing, and it's a black circle. And you ask him, what was his name? Um, what's, what's the boy's name? Noam. No, Noam, yeah. yeah. He, um, Noam, what's the, what's, what's the black circle? Yeah. And he says, that's a trampoline. It's so moving. But, That's a tramp, and it, and what you describe is the way that he found an adaptation that his his mind was able to was able to imagine alternatives. Yeah, very much. Can I talk about your book? Sure. Huh? You find out it's this horrendous piece of news that just dev- totally devastates you. Next thing you go online and find out who that. Relative, maybe. So you immediately get to keep gear and start, do something instead of pretending like, okay, it didn't happen. Let me just f- keep everybody fooled like everything is, is normal. You immediately go into action, including lying in your bed and <laughs> contemplating what you, what you were going to do. Uh, but it's your own story is a, is a remarkable story about resilience itself. Yeah. And you use what you do best, which is finding words. And you wish that in everybody, because finding words is a beautiful thing. Yeah? I felt I've never been more grateful yeah. to that this is what I do. Yeah. Um, although I also think it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. Like, is this what I do? Because this was always the story that was lurking. It's yeah. impossible to really pry them apart. There's some way in which this was always the story that was lurking beneath all the other stories. Yeah. I always wrote about family secrets, all my novels were centered yeah, around the yeah, corrosive yeah. power of secrets and families. And then I started writing memoirs. No one was more surprised than me. Why was I writing memoirs? I wasn't particularly interested in my own life, right. but I was digging for something. 
And I was using my life sort of as a laboratory to try right. to make inquiries into things that I was interested in. you could make in. it interesting. Hmm? You could make it interesting. Not everybody can do that, you know, like <laughs> the, 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 the skill that you had like that. <laughs> well, it was like trying to always put together what belongs with what. It yeah. always felt like a puzzle. And then the, the answer to the biggest puzzle of all, you know, there's a line in Inheritance where I write, I always knew there was a secret. When I didn't know, the secret was me. That's right. I think that, and so we're just finishing up our workbook for, for our book. And we invite people to write all the time. And not to write in an organized way, to just start writing. Take a glass. Start writing by the glass. See what comes up. Pop, 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 pop. And by free writing sooner or later, pieces of yourself start getting revealed. Much better than if you and I talk to each other. Because if I talk to you, I'm mainly worried about whether you will like what I'm saying, whether you think I'm smart. But if you write to yourself, that critic can sort of step back and say, I'm just going to write some nonsense. You can't do that because you have to make a living doing it. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
she would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I teach large retreats a couple of times a year, there's an exercise that I love giving the group, and it's based on um, a book that came out in the 80s by a writer named Joe Brainerd, and the book is called I Remember, which are two of the most evocative words when put together in the English language. Mm -hmm. If you begin with the words I remember, you will finish that sentence, Mm -hmm. and then drop down a line, and Mm -hmm. then begin again, I remember, drop down a line, and then it becomes associative, And I sit from where I'm, I sit and I look out at a room full of people and they're all writing. Right. No one stops. And, and then they discover things. And then I have them go back to their rooms that night and say, now write, I don't remember. Right. <laughs> and you don't necessarily share it with people. That's the important thing. Yes. You write for yourself and find words for your inner world. That strikes me in your book also. You find this piece of truth and you're basically dumbfounded. And you talk about, my quotation from trauma, that trauma is a non-verbal experience. And then you start finding words to begin to organize your relationship to yourself, which is beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I um, quote you in, in the book, and it's actually from an, the interview that you did with Krista Tippett, um, that I was driving along and it absolutely just you know, stopped me in my tracks, which was, um, it's the nature of trauma that it doesn't allow a story to be told. And I realized, I realized something interesting about writing about trauma, because when I began Inheritance, I started writing right away. I was writing on index cards. I was trying to remember because my brain was kind of injured a little bit. So words, I, thoughts, thoughts that I wanted to retain, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to bring them back or remember. And then I started actually writing, and I wrote about 200 pages as I was researching and doing. And then I had to go away because... My last book was coming out, and I, I, I was traveling. So I left the pages, which were pages I was feeling okay about. Mm, mm. And when I came back and I reread them, my heart just sank because they were no good. They, really? were, they were recursive. Mm. They were an exercise in writing from trauma. Mm. Um, if the nature of trauma is that it doesn't allow a story to be told, I was returning again and again to the same questions without new insight or new additions to those mm. questions, which is, I think, what, when we tell stories in a state of trauma, that's kind of what we're doing. Right. 
And I kept on, this is the question I kept returning to over and over again. What did my mother know? What did my father know? And it wasn't going anywhere. And I realized, I think poets can write directly from trauma. I think they're the only... Uh, they come as close to it as anybody. As, as, yeah. as, yeah. But the pro, prose can't come directly from that place. It needs a tiny little fulcrum of distance. When I finally started again, I realized that I wanted to write from a place where I could go into the past, where I could be in the present of the story, and where I could also make these leaps into... I wanted to hold the present, the past, and the future in, in, in my hands and be able to... I wanted to be a storyteller, mm. and I wanted to shape order out of the chaos of the story, right. which is what I do. And one of the insights that I had um, in rereading The Body Keeps a Score was that I think that that was my action, that in order, like, starting to report, starting to research, starting to write. I mean, I love the question when people say, how soon did you know you were going to write a book about this? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> five seconds? Yeah, yeah. Um, because what else was I going to do? It's how I... It's right, how, that's how you do it. It's how I do it. It's how I know if anything. If you have been a choreographer, you would have made a dance out of it. <laughs> like, that's right, yeah. that's right. But I, I, I remember saying to my therapist at the time... Um, what if I were a lawyer and I just had to go back to my law firm and go back to work? And she said, well, you probably would start drinking way too much and eventually eventually have a little mini breakdown and have to take some time off. Um, But the the stuffing it away, Mm -hmm. the the shelving it, the compartmentalizing it, um, I imagine that that's what a lot of people do for a yeah. while until yeah. it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And to my mind, you know, there's a woman come to, to my 31st annual trauma conference this year. Her name is Anita Sawyer, who is a psychology professor at Yale. And I met her, sat next to her in the podium at Yale, and she said, when I was a kid, I was hospitalized for cutting myself, for eating glass, for uh, the most horrendous things. And they called me schizophrenic, they called me bipolar illness, they called me all these names and then what became very clear I was reenacting my sexual trauma as a kid and then slowly she found words for herself and what I was really touched by is she didn't have any pretense that she was a writer she she got scholarships to, to go to writing retreats and maybe she took classes with you for all I know and she learned to write and tell her truth and it's just a stunning stunning thing that she was able to really liberate this poor girl who was so abused from herself by finding language for that experience for that girl. It's just spectacular. And, and what, I, what I was jealous of, because I didn't do this when I wrote my book, is that we need to have more writing retreats. We, have, we need more places where people can go and safely write about themselves and safely experience themselves. And right now you need to go to a nut house in order to do that. And, this, no. and they have the insurance to pay for it. You know, it's, it's completely wrong. It's you know? so true. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in New England, so this will make sense to a lot of you. But so I teach once a year at Kripalu. Yeah. And, um, and Kripalu looks a little bit like a nut house when you're driving up to it. It still and, does. In fact, does. I, I have a mother and daughter who came together once, maybe a year or two ago, and... They later told me that they're, they're pulling up the driveway and the daughter said to the mother, Mom, am I going to rehab? <laughs> <laughs> but, and you know, that old Jasmine building is still a bit <laughs> problematic. 
but it, it, it kind of res- it, it restores my faith in humanity whenever I lead one of those retreats because people are coming from everywhere and they're not necessarily writers. There are people in there yeah. because they've published books and they want something out of the weekend. That's that. There are people in there who are really just in this place of, not just, they're in a place of self-exploration and they're side by side. And I always tell them when they're about to write something, you're, you're not going to share this or you are going to share this. And there are exercises I give them that they will share and I break them up into small groups and they go all over the, you know, that main hall in, in Kripalu. And as they're there sharing their work, that's what restores my faith in humanity because I walk around the room and I see all of these people who have never met each other before right, that right, day. And they're right. leaning forward right. and they're listening. Yep, yep. They're crying. Yep. It's, uh, it's, it, yeah, there's, we, such a, there's such a longing and a hunger for that kind of connection. See, and that gets back to my, your earlier question of, is there an increased understanding of trauma? Is it, or is it worse? The critical issue is one's belief in authority. You know, um, do I go to somebody who knows it all, or am I the authority? When you're traumatized, it's very hard to believe that you're the authority, but you are. Mm-hmm. And so the critical thing that you probably do in your workshops, that I do in my workshops, is really the... the focus of control is inside of you and to discover yourself. And nobody can do that for you. You can create a place where people can do it. You can go to your dance studio, your music studio, the writing studio, but at the end you have to put it out. And you can't do it in your head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I think of the writing workshops that I've taught over many years, you know, small academic writing workshops. And I think of them now as a bunch of bobbleheads around a table, like kind of disconnected from bodies. And I can no longer, when I teach, I can never teach without including meditation in my teaching without, I mean, I'm not a yoga teacher, but I incorporate yoga or bring in a yoga teacher because that sense of stories being, um, caught or trapped in the mm-hmm, body. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stephen yeah. Cope writes about that a yeah, lot in, in Yoga and the yeah. Quest for the yeah. True yeah. Self. Yeah. Um, or, you know, anyone who has practiced yoga knows that feeling of being in a certain pose, like a hip opener, and suddenly, a, like, we have such little access to right. our histories and in our inner lives. I mean, it's shocking to me how little access we have. Right. And I, I've come, that's become so clear to me since... Uh, my discovery, because I go back, I recently had reason to go back and read my early work to see, I have a unique capacity to see what I knew or didn't know. The 25-year-old writing her first novel, did she know? Mm -hmm. She knew. Uh Uh It's there. It's there on the page. It Uh makes me just bow down and say, yes, there is an unconscious, and it's alive and well and living in all of us, because I through the path of all of my books was somehow tracing this. Um, I mean, in one of my books a few years ago, way before, before my discovery, I wrote um, about snooping through my parents' things, haunting my mother's closets, you know, riffling. Yeah, you write in this, this book also. I write, yeah, 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 I think I write about snooping Shamelessly in all my books. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Don't let me stay in your house. <laughs> 
Um, but but the, the language that stopped me stopped me was, what was I looking for? That's a clue, right. a reason. Right. I wrote right. that. I was looking for a reason. Right. Right. I mean, that just sort of astonishes me. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of what people can do, you know, the, the tools that you write about, right. whether it's EMDR yeah. or it's that amazing um, theater therapy right. that I found completely fascinating. I wanted to uh, do it. Well, Stephen Cope, who we mentioned before, I thought his book, Yoga and a True Self, was a true, a true book. And learning to inhabit your body is terribly important. You know, I've done all these different things. Um, but I think what may be most, most helpful for me is to get rolled. Rolf is the most intense body therapy there is. I was born at the end of the Second World War. Half of my birth cohort died because of the starvation going on. I barely made it. And I was a sickly little kid. I was, had asthma. And I was a frozen little boy. And not until my body was opened up out of its frozen position did I begin to really flourish intellectually also. It's interesting. And so... Something needs to be opened up in your body, and I think yoga, qigong, martial arts may be very, very helpful for that. You just give you a sense of presence and agency on a physical level. That's not, not enough. Not a lot of, it doesn't solve your problems, but it certainly opens things up. Um, but we talked about it in the back. EMDR was a great breakthrough to me. Um, in my training... Uh, I studied with Fritz Perls before I did my residency. I think and we should explain to people what EMDR Fritz Perls, is. Let, let me do Fritz Perls first. Okay. Fritz, Fritz Perls, the old weird guy in Nestle, where I now teach, um, had people sit, talk to each other, different parts of each other, move from chair to chair, um, confront parts of themselves, do a lot of acting. And I started to do my training at Harvard. And I was called in and said, if you, I hear you move, if I ever hear you move with your patients again, you're fired, and I'll be sure you never get a job as a psychiatrist because we don't move. We give drugs and we talk to people. We don't move. I said, yes, sir. So I didn't, because we believe in authority, but you're, I'm sorry, I didn't do anything. And then EMDR was this weird treatment where you move your fingers in front of people's eyes. Bizarre thing. You know, I, no one, nobody believes in it. And I, I started to do it. And people just went in these older state of consciousness. And their memories started to go like, yeah, that happened to me. Shit, that poor kid. But that kid had to put up with back then. But it sort of allowed your brain to put it into the past and to associate it to new things. And just this past year, after 20 years of hustling for stealing from other grants, we defined it in the study how EMDR works. It actually changed the brain circuits that allow you to observe yourself and to activate parts of your brain that allows you to say, this happened to me a long time ago, but it's not happening right now. And so these weird eye movements change brain tracks. And almost all of my colleagues said, that's bizarre. I don't won't give you any money to study what those bizarre eye movements do. But it turns out it's bizarre of what's changed brain tracks in a very profound way, probably more, more powerful than any drug that we know of. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so 
And that's true for everybody who survives trauma. You have to try things out. And some of the things may be strange, like Qigong, or what people do in China, do Tai Chi every morning. <laughs> it works. <laughs> you actually recommended kickboxing in the, in the book oh, to no, one no, patient. A patient I walked in at the end of the summer and seen her. And I was struggling with her if she wasn't getting anywhere. She did kickboxing. Mm. She comes in in September and mm. she marches into my office. I said, what happened to you? I said, nothing. I took some kickboxing lessons. And my husband and I get along much better and I'm able to stand <laughs> up for myself. <laughs> For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.